0: Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Desperation, Part 2, Desperation, In These Silences, Something May Rise. Let's start
1: the show. And Trajan takes Ellen Carver out of the jail and leaves a coyote to watch over the rest of the group. David Carver strips naked, lathers himself with soap, slips through the jail bars while Johnny Marinville distracts the coyote and is able to escape. After exploring the abandoned town of Desperation, David returns to the jail, kills the coyote, and frees the rest meanwhile steve and cynthia explore the mine's office complex and arrive at desperation only to find themselves trapped in town by scorpions and dive bombing birds eventually they meet up with the others along with audrey a worker at the mine in an abandoned theater the section ends with a twist when ellen carver returns to the jail and finds it empty dun 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 jay i said at the end of our last episode that i was really enjoying the book and then I was afraid that it had sort of hit its peak and that it was going to be all downhill from there. And I continue to enjoy the book like this. The second part has still got me intrigued. I will say it was a little bit slower than the, the first part, but I was really into it. And I kept thinking to myself, self, self, because that's what I call myself, self. I kept saying, I like that they had entrain at the front and he took Ellen away how come we're not spending more time with Entrajan? I want to find out what happens. What happens? And then that twist hit me at the end. I'm like, oh, that's some good stuff, King. I dig
0: it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was quite the nice twist. And so it
1: really gives us a big change in the story because I had been sort of built up in my mind that Entrajan was going to be the big bad guy, I guess, for the group to to face off on. Literally the big bad guy. He kept growing and growing, but I guess I should have known as he was starting to grow out of his skin that that wasn't going to last for long. But now we've got uh, a new antagonist in Ellen Carver, obviously possessed by something, Tack, we would guess. And uh, I think that that's going to make for a very interesting encounter when she, it encounters the rest of the group and her husband and son are going to be quite freaked out, I would imagine.
0: Yeah. King made a really good choice, I think, in the in the successor to Trajan there. Yeah. Any of the others, I think, could have been a little bit more hands off to the rest of the characters. But it makes you wonder, like, what are all the implications to this? Because you were operating under the assumption that Trajan's body was breaking down, and therefore he was, he was like, whatever was possessing him was outgrowing his physical form. But that didn't necessarily mean that that thing needed a new host. It just meant that maybe something that we didn't know what, what it was, or like something unexpected was going to burst out of him like, like an alien kind <laughs> right of up. thing, right? That eventually the, the human husk would fall away in bloody bits to reveal something new. Instead, we get new human form once again being transformed in a crazy way.
1: Yep. Looking back, the fact that we read The Regulators should have made me aware that the tech did not have to embody one specific person. You know, he jumped into another person's body at the end of that novel. So I guess it shouldn't have been that much of a surprise, but when the twist came, I I think I was just so into the novel at that point that it did sort of catch me by surprise. And as I was going back through my notes, it's a little bit foreshadowed in a good way, but not obvious enough. Like King sometimes is where he will outright say like, Oh, well, the dog lived another 13 years or this person thought about it way after the fact, or this was the last day that this person was on earth. And you know, like you're okay, he's going to die or he's going to live. But you know, Ellen whispers to Trajan when she's leaving something like, not in front of my son, I don't want him to have to see this. And Trajan's like, oh, I'm not doing that to you. Like I've got other plans. And it's like, oh, I never thought to wonder what those could have been. But there was another question that the characters bring up while they're in the jail. And that is, why did he pass over us? He could have killed us all just as easily as he killed Pi or your husband, Mary. And I'm still trying to figure out why Trajan slash Tack who he keeps and who he kills, because we learn in this section that he has murdered dozens and dozens of people, right? Yeah. There's all the people at the mine who are dead. There are many people in the town that are dead. They're hanging on hooks in different places. And even in the characters that we've met so far, you know, the the daughter gets killed. Mary Jackson's husband, Peter, gets shot at the beginning. And it seems sort of random to me, but I'm wondering if there was a reason that these people were chosen and what they were chosen for.
0: That is to be determined, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But it is an interesting question to ponder. But what do they have in common? Uh, all of them, except for Billingsley, are from out of town, right? Correct. So maybe there's something to that. But Trajan wasn't. He was a local, or at least he'd been a local for a lot of years. Yeah.
1: But then why kill some of the people who are from out of town too? Right. And you're like, okay, well, maybe the young girl, because he doesn't need a young girl's body. Like Maybe that won't be the best host for for him but why not Peter Jackson? You know, he just seemed to randomly yeah. shoot him at, at some point, but he wants to keep Marinville alive. Like,
0: yeah. If, if physical size and strength is a, is like a key consideration, why kill everybody who's taller than a certain height? Yeah. It seems like everybody's dead, not just like the shortest people in town or, or something. Right. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. It's, and whether or not that'll be explained
1: or whether or not it's a key point, it's just something else that at, when the twist happened, it was like, okay, all these things are falling into place a little bit and bring up more questions for me and make me
0: wonder what King's getting at. Well, there's something interesting that in the regulators, when Tack first encounters Seth, he recognizes there's something special about Seth, that he can actually possess Seth. He can be, you know, Seth can actually be a vessel that can contain the power that that he has that other people can't maybe he's tried this before and led to failure just like at the end of the book where you know he jumps out of seth and tries to go into the next human and can't right Right. the the, the head explodes so we saw some of that or we saw maybe a false alignment or parallel in this book where the most powerful person was in Trajan. he's just physically imposing person who's also a person of a, in an authority position, right? He's a cop, he's got a gun, he has a badge. All this stuff that comes with that plus his physical size makes him an ideal host if the body can withstand the possession, right? right. And it doesn't seem to work by the exact same rules. There's something about Seth's mind that it was unique. He wasn't turning into a, a gory mess the way in Trajan. <laughs> Yes, right? So there's something different going on with this possession here. But when whatever this thing is, I guess, is attack, trades bodies for Ellen Carver, that body puts on a police uniform and drives the police cruiser. Yeah. So she basically, or it basically, realized that having the authority of the human authority that meant something
1: it has some sort of
0: yeah it's an additional power of some sort almost
1: yeah i i will say that as you're talking through that it does make me worry about cynthia and david who both seem to have at least a small portion of the shine they they both have talked about how they can feel things and and understand things ahead of time Mm -hmm. and if that is any sort of draw that might be a, a concern as we get further in the book. Yeah. And speaking of David, there's a lot in this section about David's fate. Mm. He seems to think that something has told him to keep an eye on that soap and that the soap means something. And that's what he obviously uses to escape. And uh, what I thought was interesting about how King approaches David's faith is how quickly the others start to put their faith in David because they sense something about him, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not you believe what David is hearing is God's voice. Or if he's some sort of conduit or from God, the characters don't actually go out and say that. But the confidence that David has starts to turn them in his direction. Yeah, and at first, and Trajan is very uh, dismissive of David. Mm. So you know, it, when when David's uh, sister is killed and his mother looks like she's going to be taken away, he starts praying. He gets down on his knees and and trajan says you're a little prey boy aren't you and when i read that i'm like oh that's so withering like just so dismissive and and condescending and i think for many characters that would be but for david he's just sort of like yeah so he just looks at a trajan and and keeps on doing it and i think that that's one of the things that even his father who's very dismissive of, of his son's praying and starts to see him in a different light there and then those other things just keep happening right so he's able to escape He's able to get away from the coyote. He's able to, you know, effectively find his sister and as emotional as that is, get get over that. Um, he's able to come back and kill the coyote, which no one else thinks he's gonna be able to do. And after that point, everyone's sort of like all in. They're like, I can't believe this kid can do this. And so uh that seemed to be sort of a theme for me in this section.
0: I think that part of the reason why David seems to have this resilience is that he's come upon his faith, and we're calling it faith because the book has described it as such. Mm-hmm. He's come upon it in a unique way. He's not part of a congregation of an organized religion. He has had a an experience that has transformed how he connects to the world around him. Like he's still like it, it seems that he grew up in a household that wasn't a religious household. Right. He didn't go to church. He'd never even read the Bible or any part of it before this experience that he'd had. So by being called a a little pray boy, by <laughs> Trajan. That could easily roll off his shoulders because, like, what are you talking about, dude? Yeah. Like, I actually talk to God. Screw you, <laughs> right? You know, I, I think that that's a big part of that. But as I like to do in our discussions about this, if you look at this through the lens of the Dark Tower, how do we know that this voice that seems to speak through him and give him ideas or point out what maybe is obvious, like the soap, right? Is that not the voice of the Tower or the rose, or the turtle. It could be any or all of those things. It's just, we as human beings tend to just, uh, we give it a construct that we can understand, that we can wrap our, our minds around. David doesn't know what Maturin is because he's never walked through Endworld with Roland <laughs> Deschain, right? But we do, and maybe that's what's communicating through him. Maybe there are forces in play here that are so big that they extend beyond the realm of just everyday life. For David, for the adults in his life, for the priest who he seeks explanations and, and advice from, it's the voice of God. But no matter how you slice it, that's what is powering David. Yep. That's what's inspiring him. And it's his own connection to those powers and his own like steel as as Roland would put it, that give him the that ability to stand up to that withering criticism. Of course, he's not going to falter. Of course, he's going to keep trying. Of course, he's going to go back and put his sister to rest and kill the coyote. Yep. This is another twinner of Jake, right? And we would expect no less from him. Right. And he doesn't lead with his faith. Like he's not saying, oh,
1: God's the one who told me to soak myself uh-huh. up or God told me this is how I should shoot. It's just, i'm doing this i think that this is what we should do Um, yeah he's able to pick up the cell phone later on and talk to steve and give him directions on where to go and you know at, at one point i think johnny's like you know after after david kills the coyote david gives the gun to his father and johnny goes away to look for some stuff he has his own little adventure and then when he comes back he's not exactly shocked to see that David has the pistol again. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, he's the gunslinger. He should probably have the he should probably have the gun and not the the shotgun or the or, or the rifle. Um yeah. but but none of this is David leading with his faith. He's not saying oh God's telling us to do this, let's do this. God's telling me to do that. Let's do that. It's just sort of hey I'm gonna do this and everyone falls in line. So um subtle in that
0: way. There's a line Same people don't believe in God, which is another way of saying that to have faith is to trust that something is true with the lack of evidence of that thing being true. And I think that David might be operating in that zone, but what the others around him, the the forces gathering around David, they're observing things that are true. They see that when David touches a dead cell phone, it works. They see that when David, who has never shot a gun before in his life, is able to kill a very dangerous creature that is possessed of more than just animal instinct, that he has figured out a way to escape a prison cell. How many more pieces of evidence do these other characters need before? Yep. This is not blind faith. This isn't even faith. This is just recognizing evidence and saying, David is on to something here. I think I can trust him. I think I can give him the gun. I know that where he's leading me will take me someplace better than where I am now. So David's faith is everybody else's evidence.
1: Yeah, at one point somebody says faith wasn't rational. Sane men and women don't believe in God.
0: And they have all
1: experienced something now that isn't rational. Mm-hmm. So I think they're more they're also more prone to be like, Okay, well, if this guy is growing and like coyotes are listening to him and and birds are listening to him, like we're sort of outside the realm of normal and rational. So maybe I could expand my horizons a little bit. You know, <laughs> I, I saw a quote on on Twitter today where it, it was Shaggy saying, once again, we proved that there's no such thing as a paranormal. Scooby, Root Rob, yes, talking dog. Thank you for helping us prove that there's nothing <laughs> abnormal here. <laughs> All right. For our last little section here, we, we want to talk a little bit about the metafiction that in the regulators King seemed to be playing around with, and we've noted that it was almost like a prototype for all the metafiction to come in dark tower. And he's got a little bit of that in this book as well. Jay.
0: Yeah. Some of it was a a little cheesy. That's why we have in our notes, the section is called three layer cheese dip because of (laughs) the, the metafiction and the layers. Um, I noted that there was a passage where there, we have smart characters making dumb decisions, where Cynthia says, we're behaving like characters in a cheap horror movie. She thought dismally staying when we know we should go, poking where we have no business poking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't do you it. You should be getting out of Dodge. There's a whole horror movie called Get Out because of <laughs> that exact trope, and here it is, and it's King writing a horror story with a character saying, we're acting like we're idiots in a horror story doing the bad thing in a horror story. Like, okay, there's a lot of cheese in this dip. And, and even, I love it.
1: And even when she says it, I think it's when Steve tells her, stay in the truck, I'll just go in. Yeah, and, let's split up. And she's like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to stay here. I'm going to go into the spooky house with you.
0: Oh, you can't win because you, if you split up, that's when everybody gets killed. Too. Well, that's true. Yes, that is true.
1: Uh, the other one I wanted to note is when when David kills the coyote and he rescues his father, they hug and David's father makes this like laughing, crying sound. And in the book, it says Johnny thought it one of the most extraordinary sounds he had ever heard in his life and one you could never convey in a book. So here we have Johnny Maronville, an award winning Author, the literary genius of his time, saying, Wow, that sounds amazing. I could never convey that in a book as an author. And it's being written by Stephen King, one of the preeminent authors of his time, writing about said incident without being able to do that. And it's just sort of this layer upon layer of two authors saying, Hey, here's a sound that I can't describe, but let me try to describe it to you.
0: It's pretty great.
1: It reminded me very much, I don't know why, of The Princess Bride when uh, Peter Falk gets to the end. He starts to talk about how great this kiss was, and he's like, Ah, oh, no, I can't I can't describe this kiss because it was one of the greatest in the world. I don't know why I got that same feeling from it, but that was sort of the vibe I got. So, again, metafiction, laying it on, three-layer
0: cheese dip. I like it. Delicious. Now you got me hungry for some Dark Tower thinnies.
1: Well, you started to talk about the Dark Tower a little bit earlier, but do you have anything else that might be considered a Dark Tower Thinny Jay?
0: I do. So there's a scene at the end of the section when we have the twist and we realize that it's Ellen who is now possessed by the demon. And Ellen is angry that all of the jail cells are empty, and she holds aloft this totem and uses it to summon all of the spiders and creepy crawlies from everywhere because they are in her thrall with this totem. Right, And it just reminded me of sort of a parallel but opposite effect that was in the Dark Tower books with the Shkulpata, the turtle totem, where it passed from one hand to another a couple of times, but ultimately it ended up in Father Callahan's hands. Mm-hmm. And when he was in the Dixie Pig, when he was being overrun by all the creepy crawlies, all of the things that wanted to kill him, the vampires and the those weird little bugs and everything else it made me think of that scene but instead of summoning them to him it was holding them at bay yep and i just made me think of that moment in the dark tower yeah that's a good one i like it
1: i don't have any so if you've got another one
0: i have one other one that um i think it's a little bit more of a stretch than (laughs) what i just did but so when cynthia and steve are exploring the quonset hut they find at the end of the the hall. There is this just room of gore and murder, dead bodies hanging on hooks, etc. There's a line that describes it as the large space looked like a combination workroom, lab, and storage area. It was lit by high-intensity lamps with metal hoods, a little like the lights which hang over the tables in billiard emporiums, and they cast a bright lemony glow. So between that description and the dead bodies on hooks and stuff like that, this reminded me a lot of Mordred's birthplace in Mm -hmm. the Dark Tower, that they were in this, what I imagine to be this industrial kind of like everything's made of stainless steel space where Susanna goes to give birth. Yep. So, like the birthplace of Mordred and the birthplace of, I don't know, this possession of this town, this mining town, kind of have a parallel there.
1: You're right. It's definitely a little bit more of a stretch. But when you pointed it out, I was like, oh yeah, the Quonset Hut, that does very much remind me of where the modern thing. I think
0: King might use those exact same descriptions. So I'll give it to you. All right. Plus, I I think uh, King is like secretly sponsored by Quanzit because uh, <laughs> he puts Quanzit huts in so many of his books. It's true. All right. Well,
1: there were quite a few yucking it up moments. What do you got for us here, Jay?
0: Uh, oh, so much in and yucking it up, <laughs> but I'll stick with this one. Instead of a hair, he pulled out the tongue itself. He looked at it for a moment, lying limply in his fist like a piece of liver, then tossed it aside. Yeah. Yuck. That is not good.
1: I guess at that point I should have realized that uh, Entragy was not going to be in the story much longer because he wouldn't be able to talk without a tongue, so wouldn't be that much more of an interesting character. Yeah, because he was so <laughs> eloquent earlier in yeah, that story. Well, that's true. <laughs> uh, mine was simple. It's just three words, Jay, but it's as... Steve and Cynthia are walking through the desperation mining offices and Steve just looks over and says, that's a hand. <laughs> and it's a, <laughs> it's a disembodied hand in an aquarium that makes a return appearance when they're leaving said office complex and the aquarium has exploded. And he looks over and he sees the hand on the floor, but this time it's got a dead fish in it. And it's like, okay. Yeah. But, but just that simple, that's a hand. I, it's not that yucky in its description, but The image that it produced, very good. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I've got one more. This is the scene where Steve and Cynthia go into one of the houses and find an entire family rotting where they sat at their dinner. And what really got to me was the description of, of what was going on here with, The family had been about to eat what looked like the evening meal. There were flies buzzing over the pot roast, and some of the slices were already supporting colonies of maggots. The creamed corn had congealed in its bowl. The gravy was a greasy clot in its boat. (laughs) If that doesn't make you hungry,
1: I don't know what will. Yeah. All right, let's go away from the gross stuff into the good stuff. And that's our patrons, Jay. There's nothing better than our patrons, Sean. Yeah, they are not creamed corn congealed in a bowl. They are heroes to us, and they support our show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. You can learn more by visiting Patreon.com/slash Two Guys Dark Tower.
0: Yeah, and we want to shout out to a new patron, Alexander A, who recently joined at the Cotet level. Thank you, Alexander.
1: Yes. And Alexander has had some uh, great correspondence with us and uh, is looking forward to hearing this desperation. And because of our hiatus, he's hearing this a couple months after he uh, joined at the Cotet level. But we're glad to have you aboard and hopefully you're enjoying our desperation coverage. Indeed. And we also have some anniversaries, Jay, patrons who have been with us for a while. There's Jan H. who's been here for a year and Tim M. and Kimberly W. have both been patrons for two years. So thank you to all of you for your continued support.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of anniversaries, this is right around the fifth anniversary of our podcast.
1: That's right. Uh, we were doing all the initial legwork in the fall of 2016, Jay. And I think our first episode was late November, early December of 2016. That's right. Congratulations to us. Five years.
0: Yeah. Huzzah. Half a decade.
1: <laughs> There's not that many podcasts to uh, make it that far. So
0: good for us. Yeah. yeah.
1: And thank you all for supporting us, especially those of been with us early and continue to spread the word hopefully we can do a lot more for you and get more people listening yeah it's
0: great all around all right
1: it's time for some fun stuff
0: fun stuff
1: you want to start us off there i will start us off this wasn't a dark tower thinny, so i threw it in fun stuff and ellen carver is reflecting on her life and that she can't believe what is happening to her that she's trapped in this town and it's a jail and that this awful police officer is taking her away. And she's she says about herself, she's the one who liked to curl up in the living room on weekend nights with a cup of hot tea and a few chocolates and paperbacks with titles like Misery and Paradise. And that is a reference to uh, one of the books that the romance author writes in the book Misery, uh, Misery in Paradise. So a nice little call
0: out there. That's pretty great. I love it. <laughs> I laughed out loud when uh, Steve Ames was going into the garage, checking for a place to park and hide the rental uh, truck that he's driving. And when he moved the tire aside, a a rat jumped on him and bit him and he had to fight it off. And when he grabbed it by the tail, swung it over its head and threw it across the the garage, he called it a rat steroid, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. That is good.
1: We talked in the regulators how it seemed like such a 90s book to me that there's a bunch of 90s references. And Desperation is also one that has one, in addition to the flip phone that Steve is carrying around that doesn't seem to work all the time because, you know, it's the 90s. Uh, they also mentioned that it was like Jack Palance doing push ups at the Academy Awards. <laughs> and that's like so perfectly carbon dated, like you could get down to the actual month and year of that. And I would imagine that half of our listeners probably have no idea what that reference is to,
0: but... They may not even know what the Academy Awards are, because no. who cares yeah. about that? Definitely not Jack <laughs> uh, See, city slickers, and then you'll know all about them. <laughs> uh, I got a kick out of this because, as uh, our dedicated listeners know, I am not a fan of sports. I don't have anything against them. I just have zero interest. And there's a, a moment when Cynthia is getting frustrated with Steve Ames about what's going on with this town. And, and she theorizes about a couple of teams. Do you think that maybe most of the local yokels charted a bus to go watch the desperation dorks play a doubleheader with the Austin assholes? Big <laughs> desert rivalry? I think that if there were teams with names like that, I would be a fan of those teams, and I'd watch whatever sport it is that she's referring to. Is a doubleheader baseball? That I would be baseball, know. yes. And there is okay. a
1: tendency for minor league teams to have offbeat names. So, for instance, uh, the Akron minor league team here in nearby my town is called the Akron Rubber Ducks, which...
0: Oh, but if they were the Akron assholes, <laughs> yeah. they'd be my team. Yes,
1: yeah, so you, so you get names like Desperation Dorks, Austin Assholes, the Springfield Isotopes. Yeah, you get all sorts of weird names when it comes to minor league baseball.
0: <laughs> I would be a fan just so I could like wear the t-shirt. Oh, right? sure. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever really watch a game or care who wins, but... Would you
1: want an Austin Asshole or a Desperation Dork?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think I would have one of each. And, oh, you yeah, know, there you just go. Change it up every once in a while. Yeah, my dork's been desperate many a time. Uh... Oh, uh, my last one in fun stuff is, I think we could say that Johnny could be a potential stand in for King. He's another writer. Oh, for sure. But obviously much more of an asshole than Stephen King, I think like he's very pretentious and full of himself and not maybe the nicest guy in the world. So I think King is maybe having some fun with Johnny Maronville. but perhaps this one quote cuts a little bit close to home. And Johnny thinks he had never enjoyed his own kids much. They had a tiresome way of upsetting you for the first twenty years, and trying to upstage you for the second twenty. And the only reason I mention this is maybe not in nineteen ninety-seven, but certainly in two thousand seven and two thousand seventeen, and now uh, Stephen King's kids are doing pretty well for themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just wonder if King's like, wait a minute, what are these kids doing upstaging me? And they were upsetting him for yeah for the first the years when he wrote this book. Yeah. All right, Jay. What else is happening outside of the Stephen King universe?
0: For my other worlds than these, I wanted to just mention that I am enjoying the hell out of the Hulu original series, Only Murders in the Building. Hmm. And it's got Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, and a few other recognizable faces. And this show just continues to impress me. Every episode is has surprising things. The acting in it is great. I love how it's sort of like a mystery detective story, but also like this, I don't know, love song to Manhattan and big buildings, and it also has this meta layer of podcasting, and I am always watching this and saying, I feel so seen by this show, like whether it's you know, we got to get more listeners or something (laughs) like that. Like the show is just great. And if you're not watching it and you have Hulu, watch the show, you will love it. It's just really,
1: really good. It is on my list of things to watch. In fact, my wife and I rarely watch TV together and she has shown interest in the show and I have shown interest in the show. So we actually got Hulu back so that we could watch this, but we haven't delved into it yet, but we will soon. However, since we did get Hulu back and I didn't want to waste the... $6.99 a month, I did start watching again, what we do in the shadows, which is my other worlds in these topic for today. Fantastic. And the movie was great. Mm -hmm. And the TV show takes that premise, but sets it in Staten Island with a new set of vampires. And the first two seasons were fantastic. And this third one is starting off great as well. I've watched two or three episodes and it's just so silly and so hilarious. I just, I just can't get over it. And the actors on it all are just so perfectly cast as the vampires, Mm -hmm. especially Colin Robinson, the energy vampire. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I can't get enough of it. Anyhow, what we do in the shadows. And if you haven't seen the movie, be sure to find that and watch it as well, because that's some great stuff.
0: Yeah, that was Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement. Yep. Names that are massive now, but when they made that movie, no one knew them yet. And it was one of the things that put them on the map, and fantastic. If you have any love of vampire stories, they lampoon every vampire trope in the book, and you'll love everything about this. Yes. I I wholeheartedly co-endorse this with you.
1: And I can't get enough of the song by Norma Tiga, I think that's the theme song for the show. You're dead is the name of the song. Yeah. It sounds so current and yet it's like a folk song from the sixties, but it like, I love it. Anyhow, what we do in the shadows on Hulu. So Hulu, if you're listening, please sponsor our podcast. That's two episodes or two shows that we've recommended. Of uh-huh. yours. We'll talk about the handmaid's tale next. If you want anything you want, man, Just keep those Hulu dollars coming. <laughs> All right. Well, Jay, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Next episode, join us as we cover desperation. Part three, the American West legendary shadows. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.
0: Oh, I recently got this device called the Bug Zuka. Okay. It's this pneumatic device to suck up bugs into this little capture capsule at the front. So it's this long tube, and at the end is this bellows on a spring. Mm -hmm. You compress the bellows, and it locks into the cocked position. (laughs) When you press the trigger, the bellows expand, and it sucks in air into the other end of the tube. And at that end of the tube is a trap door with a one-way door and a screen right behind it. Mm. So you put the trap door near the bug, like the spider in the corner of the ceiling, and then (laughs) it gets sucked in. And then you take the whole thing outside and (laughs) let it crawl out. This giant sucking in of
1: air is not enough to kill the
0: spider in most cases. No, it's totally- <laughs> I have caught several spiders now with it, and they're just like inside going like running around and what around and around. around like, oh. like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Does it make a booming noise like a bazooka would? Uh, no, it's more like a, it's kind of like Nightcrawler when he teleports. <laughs> That's more of a BAMF. BAMF. Yeah, I'll go
1: with a BAMF. BAMF.
0: Is there a smell of
1: brimstone when it happens too? Because yes. that would be really cool.
0: Yes, because they, they're temporarily transported to the bowels of hell before <laughs> they end up in the capture capsule of the Bug Zuka. Bug Zuka. Yeah.
1: This episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came brought to you by Bug Zuka. Just
0: bamf your bugs away. We should see if Bug will sponsor the podcast now. That was a pretty good ad read. Yeah, we should. <laughs> we could get branded, two guys. The Dark Tower came branded bugzukas. That'll be our swag. Get rid of all your Mordred problems with the bugzuka. <laughs> yes, yes, I love it. <laughs> Is Mordred trying to kill you and your cotet? Get yourself a bugzuka. You won't have to sacrifice Oi if you have a bugzuka. Oh, I made myself sad just now.